This morning's passage is 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you would turn in your Bibles or prepare your device, in a few moments we will read the entire chapter. As I said a few moments ago, we are um, continuing a series we started in the fall uh, titled David the Warrior Poet. Where we've been the last few weeks, as you might remember, is looking at the five solas of the Reformation. We're going to come back to David for a short bit, and then we're going to have the Advent series, and then we'll pick up with David again uh, in the new uh, year. So, this morning and the next week, we'll look at David in the wilderness. Um, Just a quote I wanted to read from one of the uh, commentaries by Robert Alter. He says, the David narrative is probably the greatest single narrative representation in antiquity of a human life evolving by slow stages through time, shaped and altered by the pressures of political life, public institutions, family, the impulses of body and spirit, the eventual sad decay of the flesh. It is indeed a great yet difficult story. And if you were to outline, sort of tell me the highlights of David's life or even the low points of David's life, what we tend to skip over are these middle points, the wilderness years. It's easy to forget that he spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and by wilderness, I mean metaphorically, that he's in this space between the anointing, right, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, and the eventual ascension to the throne that'll come later. So he's got these years where he's the king, the spirit is on him, but he's not allowed to be king. And it really does mirror our lives as Christians, right? If you're a believer, you come, the spirit of God rests on you. The first fruits are poured on you. You are, you are changed. You are redeemed. But yet... You're not what you will one day, someday be in glory. So we have this life here on earth that in many ways is like a wilderness. And we're going to try to unpack what does it mean to be in the wilderness as we look at this passage. Um, I want to give you just a little bit of background of where we've been just because it's been so long. As I said, David was anointed. And then right after that, we have the story of David and Goliath, uh, where David slays the giant. And then we had the story of David and Jonathan. They bonded right after David slays Goliath. Remember, it's both this high point, and then it's also somewhat of a low point, especially for Saul, because everybody began to get excited about David, right? And uh, remember the song, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. People were starting to rally around David. Even Jonathan himself, Saul's son, became aware of David's kingship, and they bonded, um, and yet Saul became very angry and self-destructs. In chapter 20, which we didn't cover, but you kind of need to know the backstory, and I would highly recommend reading, uh, David tells Jonathan, I think your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan doesn't believe him until they're at supper, and David's not at dinner, and this goes on, and finally he asks Jonathan, where's David? And he begins to realize David is going to try to sneak away. David knows I'm on to him. And he starts to think Jonathan himself has favored David. He says, you son of of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? See, there's lots of drama in the Bible. And then he throws a spear at his son. Now, it's amazing because I would have just been undone by that, but Jonathan's like, yep, he wants to kill you, David. Um, I'd have been like, my dad tried to get me. I don't know if he was really like, trying to aim at him or if it was one of those, like, I'm going to clang this against the wall just to make my point, you know, firm. But Jonathan, he goes out, he has a signal, he shoots these arrows, and he sends the boy to go get the arrows, and that's the sign to David that, hey, you're on your own. You need to run. 
And for a long time, at that point, David's going to be in this wilderness phase of his life. And so let's jump into chapter 21, and, and we're going to see two snippets of story where we see David being alone. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So chapter 21 in 1 Samuel. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, but there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Himelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Excuse me. There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad? Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give you praise for David. We give you praise that we can learn from stories that make him not look quite the hero that we know him to be, yet we know he is the hero because he points to you, Jesus. And we know that we have much to learn about from him about living a life in the wilderness. And I pray you'd open our eyes to that. Amen. Um, we've all had moments where we've gotten lost. I remember there are several times in my childhood that I, you know, you get lost for a moment. There's one particular time that just stands out. For some reason, we were at a car show, and we were, uh, in, I think, the fairgrounds in Oklahoma City. And I was with my dad and stepmom and her brothers and I, his, her children, and I'd never been to a car show. And I just remember that fear of being lost. And that, you know, you look up and there's nobody around you that you know. And it overcame me. And I still have, it's hard because I think I was like five or six. So I remember going from loving the, the place and what we were seeing was all brand new to being in utter terror. I was alone. 
And then, I don't know, so I maybe found someone with a uh, walkie-talkie, and they walked me to the, the main counter. And my dad wasn't there yet. They hadn't found me. But somehow, just getting to that place where there were people that seemed to recognize I was a young child and I was lost brought a lot of comfort. So that by the time my dad showed up, I was already okay. So lostness, aloneness. We are a people that are in a wilderness and alone. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like you're in a wilderness? Does your life have that, that feel to it right now, whether it's through hardship or tragedy or difficulty? Or do you feel like you're kind of flying high? Things are really going well. I hope this morning, as we look at this passage, regardless of where you find yourself, we will see the importance of, of actually embracing, as we read the Thomas Merton quote earlier, embracing God's presence and God's love in this time of wilderness. What we're going to find with David is that David, when he was alone, he did not look at his own circumstances to define himself. He did not look at the reality of the fact that he was by himself to find his comfort. What he knew was who he was and what he was called to do, and that gave him the direction through this difficulty. So this morning, I hope we'd learn a little bit from him how he handled the wilderness years, part one. And we're going to look at his, uh, he has the, his identity, leads him to the right food, point number one. Number two, it leads him to his weapon. And three, it leads him to his tactic. Okay, I always like to make a three-point outline, and I found one in a very difficult passage to find one of those. Okay, identity. This passage is, is very challenging if you hadn't read it before, so I want to just unpack it for a moment. What David is doing is he's traveled three miles from his point of departure with Saul, to a place called Nob, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the priests, it was a town where the priests would live, their families, and it was more for safekeeping. They also, they, they had all the other furnishings. Of course, the bread of presence was there. And David shows up, but he's alone. And it's kind of striking in the text. Why are you alone? And no one is with you, Himelech says, trembling. And the reason he's trembling is, Everybody knows there's something up with Saul, right? Remember when David, when Samuel goes to anoint David and the townspeople are nervous? Like Saul's been out of favor for a long time, and people now know that David's probably the rightful king, and for him to show up alone means there might be trouble. It also means he probably came there a lot for blessing with his men in battle, so that when they, when they would go to war, they would come through this three-mile journey and be blessed and go on. And so it was very strange for him to show up by himself. And then I don't know if you picked up on it, but he seems to tell a lie. How many of you noticed that? Anyone? Uh, yeah, I know a couple of you would see that. David lies. At least he appears to. Look at verse 2. The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Is that the truth or is that a lie? Let me, let me first of all say, the Bible is not under any obligation at every narrative to tell you, this is wrong and let me show you the moral law and explain why this is wrong. It doesn't have to do that to tell a story, right? That's important. And so a lot of commentators would say, he lied, but the Bible didn't see the need at that moment to just explain it. Other commentators have said, well, maybe it wasn't a lie, or if it was, he's trying to protect Ahimelech, Right? If he came and said, Saul wants to kill me, will you help? And then he helps him, he's going to be in trouble, isn't he? 
That's a possible theory, and it could be true, except the next chapter, it didn't help. Uh, and I'll talk about that as we go. Ahimelech um, ends up being slain by this, this shadowy figure in verse 7, Doeg. So what's the other option? I'm, I'm going to venture onto a new option of identity. Here it is. I think David might be. This is the might. This is where pastors can say, I think. And he might be in this. That he knows he's the king. He knows his identity. Now, where is that in the passage? Well, that second story that we read when David goes to Gath, when the servants of Achish see him, what do they do? They report, is this not David who? The king of the land? They know. These are Philistines. These are the enemy. And they know that David's the king. If they know David's the king, and most likely Ahimelech has been aware that David's been anointed of some kind, it's very likely that David feels this freedom to say, the king is on business. Now, I will admit, it might be a little bit of a, of a tricky uh, twist, but I want you to know, I think David needed his identity to be solid in order to engage this mission he was on. You see, he did not have to go to that place. He did not need to go to the priest, right? He could have easily wandered to a cave, which we'll see next week. He could have probably found family members, which we find gathering around him next week in the next passage. I think he's on a mission that begins with where he needs to be. It reminds me of Jesus in the temple. Where else would I be? I'm going on a mission, and I'm going to be blessed. And he even says, the, the, had, the, had this been an ordinary mission, the vessels would have stayed clean for the men. But this mission especially, he's on a mission. He knows that he's been called apart to follow the Lord. Do you rest in your identity as sons and daughters of Christ? One of my heroes I talk about a lot is Jack Miller. He tells the story of they were in Uganda, I believe, he and Rosemary, and they had been invited to a meal. He did not realize who would be there. And when they show up, they find that not only is every seat taken, but the front row, it's filled with like dignitaries and, and just very high-powered people in that community and in that, in that country. And they're at the back, and it's kind of like our front row, right? No one ever, I thought about getting really cheap chairs for the new building just for the front row. Like, why waste that kind of money on chairs that no one will ever sit in? But we're going to. We're going to get the nice chairs on the front row. But for Jack and Rosemarie, they got there, and they're at the back of this room, this place, and they have to go all the way to the front, and he leans over and whispers, remember, I and you are daughters and sons of the king. We are the king's children. And it's, they kind of flashed out of their insecurity, and they were able to walk down the aisle and sit in the very front because they knew their identity. How different would your life look as you traverse your wilderness if you really embraced and understood who you are in Christ, that you are a child or a son and a daughter of the king? Is that, is that what moves you? Is that what drives you? Does that give you peace? I love that comparison because our insecurities constantly are coming up, and it, and it often will... Maybe I just won't even go in, right? Maybe I won't even do this thing. Maybe I'll avoid the danger. But for David, it was his identity that drove him into danger. And I want you to notice this danger because it's fairly severe. Verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. I want you to imagine... Saul is the guy that he's evil, but he looks smiley. This is the guy that kills all the people that's in the shadows. That's who this guy is. You see it in chapter 22. 
Later, Saul shows up and finds out that Ahimelech helped David. And he says, fine. Turns to a guard, kill him and kill the priests. The guard says, no. But guess who's right there, ready to carry out the, uh, the duty in verse 20, chapter 22, 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, Edomite, however you want to say it, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. This man was bad. This man was evil. And David maybe didn't know he was in Nob when he went, but he knew there could be danger because that's exactly the route David took every time he went on a warpath. And he could have easily avoided problems, but because of his identity, he went straight into the danger and he was willing to face it. And then he found a weapon. This is a great little bit. David says to him, like, once he sees that this guy's bad and he's there, he's like, quick, like, do you have a sword or a spear? Like, he has no weapon. And here's this bad guy in the room or somewhere in the vicinity. I don't know how exactly it all plays out. And look at, verse, look at this verse with uh, chapter 9. He said, well, I've got the sword of Goliath. Isn't that amazing? Like, I've got this one thing. Like, the most awesome sword ever, you know. And David wants the sword, and in the Hebrew, uh, there, it's four simple words. In the English, it says, there is none like that. Give it to me. And it's this turning point for David. He goes from being the kid who can sling the, the stones to, like, I am a warrior. Now, I, I think he knew how to use the sword before that. He obviously used it on Goliath. I think he was already a warrior. But there's this transition that's happening right in front of us, and that is he knows that his, the rest of his days are going to be one of engaging warfare and battle. He knows it. Do you have that mindset? Like, are you caught up in the dream? Did you, that confession that we read this morning, the sort of comfort level, modern Christianity, everything's fine, or are you aware of the fact that this side of heaven, you and I are in a desert, in a wilderness. We are in a battle, right? Ephesians 5 famously lays out the armor of God. If you can find it quickly, always mark in your Bible where you want to turn. Just, uh, just a note. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you think that way? Like, do you think this is going to be the way it's going to be? Or do you think, no, my goal with any problem that comes is to get it behind me as fast as possible and to get back to comfort as fast as I can? That's how I think. In my flesh, that's me, right? How fast can I get this behind me? But I think what we learn with David is David sees a larger mission, and we can learn from him to know it's going to be a difficult mission. And like Paul tells us, it's going to require spiritual warfare. It's going to require spiritual armor. It's going to require us learning how to use weaponry. How good are you with a sword? Can you wield a spiritual sword? Can you, do you know Scripture? Do you enjoy the presence of God? Are you someone who is able to go to Him in prayer 
when the times are difficult, when things are struggling? Are you a man and a woman of prayer, of fasting, of spiritual disciplines? Uh, the hills right now are shocked that I'm even saying this. They're like, wait a minute, I'm hearing. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. I have to do that every now and then with my, with my co-worker, my friend. But yet, it's true. We are like David, and we've made this transition. And I want to encourage us all to get to this place where we need the weapons that God has given us. But they're not the weapons like David had, right? They are faith and Scripture and the, the belt plated. You know, you go through the armor, read it, study it, but most importantly, begin to believe that you need this, these materials for your survival in the wilderness. And I want to draw our attention to this last little story uh, that seems insane, because it is. David knew how to use weapons. That's the third point. He doesn't use his sword here, and it's probably because this story maybe, maybe didn't necessarily follow exactly the last story chronologically. But David goes to Gath. Now, here's the irony. That is where Goliath was from, right? And so he goes there to find Haven. He has nowhere else he can go. So he's going to go to the enemy. And he shows up, and they kind of get a sense of who he is, and they, they come back to the king, and they report, as I've already said, it's David, the king of the land. And, did, and then he reports the song. These, these servants report the song. Think about this for a minute. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. O king Achish, David has killed tens of thousands of us. We're the ones he was killing. And here he is, like to take safe harbor. And that's exactly what the last verse of chapter 21 shows, that he came, the king even says, shall this fellow come into my house? For David, who has to flee, right, Nob, and, and flee Saul to come into this situation shows he's desperate, right? And at first, he's secretly hoping this will work. If I just maybe convince them to let me have safe harbor, I don't know, it'll work. And then they, they say that he hears, overhears this story, and he realizes, I'm toast. They know exactly who I am. They know that I've killed a lot of them. And I don't want to go into that house. And never leave. So what does he do? Awesome stuff, right? Have you seen Liar, Liar? It's Jim Carrey where he's like, what am I going to do to get out of this trial? And he goes into the bathroom and he starts beating himself up. Have you seen that movie? He starts ripping his clothes and he gets his head in the toilet, like a public toilet, and starts hitting it with the thing. His hair is disheveled. People are coming in and out. This is almost as bad. Okay, This is King David. He, let's read it together. He changes his behavior, verse 13, before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate, like scratching his fingernails into like wood, I suppose. How painful is that? He made marks on the doors of the gate and he let his spittle run down his beard. Have any of you ever, I mean, as a child, I did, I'd spit at my brother to get away from him. Like he had me, I had to just do something. And it worked. By the way, it works. And so here's David acting insane, and the guy, the king's like, I don't need another crazy. We got all those. Let him out. And he leaves. The tactic worked. Now, I want you to just think about this. This is David's lowest point that you can, right? I mean, slaying Goliath, probably the coolest. And you can just kind of go down the list. What, this has to be the most awful point. 
And then this weird thing happens if you read the Psalms. You read through the Psalms, they have those little headings. Some of them don't tell you the story until you get to Psalm 34 of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, another word for king, so Achish as well, so that he drove him out and he went away. Okay. You would think the psalm would go something like this. I'm insane. Like, I did the dumbest thing. What does he say? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Let the humble hear it. Humble. You have to be humble to use the tactic of acting insane. He was humble. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Are you willing to do crazy things for delivery? When we lived at Gulf Drive, that's a, a neighborhood near Saint, in St. Louis where the seminary students could live. And one of our, I think it was Coleman, it was two. And you could walk around, it's just really safe. But on this particular evening, the sun was setting and the kids were running around. We're all out there talking. It was a wonderful environment. And this guy is coming in the minivan a little fast. And he starts, and I probably got some of the details wrong. But here it is. He's coming in. And Coleman's on a tricycle, and he's ahead of us, and it's not going well. And if you ever want to see a person lose their mind, my wife just begins to flail. Stop! Stop! And she runs, and she couldn't catch up to Coleman, but she yelled so loud and looked so crazy and was so flailing that the guy stopped. His life was saved. Truth. I mean, it was, it was that bad. Like, we wept later. Like, that was death. I never heard Emily look at me later and go, do I look weird? <laughs> I mean, I'm a little embarrassed. In her mind, I did what I had to do to rescue my son. Right? David did what he had to do to get out to continue his mission. His mission as the king. Do you long for your redemption in the same way? Are you willing to do anything you have to do to get out of harm's way? And do you understand that you and I worship a king, Jesus, who flailed his arms for you and I? He got in front of the car. He got ran over that we might live. He is the one who loves you. He is the one who died for you. Is that your hope? Is that the mission you are on? Are you now aware of the fact that you are no longer your own, but you are on this mission in this wilderness for Christ and for his glory? And Peter, in 1 Peter says this. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As, present tense, obedient children, that is, obedient in Christ, do not be conformed to this passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Peter is talking now about desert living. He's talking about girding up the loins of your mind is the language he uses. He's talking about the fact that we are to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 
we are no longer just simply here to just have a good time. We talked about last week, it is a good time. God's glory is everywhere, especially when we walk in his ways. But are you going through the wilderness in that way? And I want to talk to two types of people. Some of you are doing really, really well right now. Things are really good. And it's annoying to come to church and be told things aren't going so well. And that's what we do. Calvinists do that, right? Every week we say, you're a sinner. You know, cheer up. You're worse than you think. But the truth is, you are in the desert. And it's helpful to realize that. And I would encourage you not to become negative. Become thankful for the way God is pouring out blessings in your life right now. But also, don't be afraid to be honest where there really is pain. Don't become, you know, David didn't go to the cave first. David didn't go to somebody that had bread. He went straight to the bread of presence. He went into harm's way. Don't become somebody that thinks life is going well because you have figured out how to avoid the pitfalls. Okay? Don't be someone that would not act insane because, hey, maybe Akish, this, this king of Gath, would be friendly to me. We'll try that out for a few months. See how that goes. And next thing you know, you're in the gallows or wherever they would have back in that culture. You can ask Thomas or someone what that would have been like. That's one, that's one group. There are some of you who are particularly aware of, the, of this horrible wilderness that we can call life that things can come undone, things can become bleak. And I would encourage you to know that Jesus has you in his arms. He, he's provided this bread of presence. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you have this sanctuary, not because it promises to take away your pain, but because like the rest of us, we are longing for heaven. Let that be our trajectory. If this life seems overly difficult, Overly difficult, overly, overly hard. All I can tell you right now is we have someone in David who was able in the midst of the, of the most horrible situation say, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. He goes on to say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him will have no lack. Is that your hope? Is Jesus what we need? Is Jesus everything? That doesn't take away the struggle, but it brings us to a place where we can better understand the desert. We can better understand the difficulties we're facing with the, with this, the beauty that God has a future for you. That one day, someday, you will be face to face with your Savior. And every tear will be wiped away, and you will be made whole. And prayerfully, this side of heaven, that healing will also happen, but we don't know. So wherever we find ourselves this morning, we have hope because of David that Jesus is our identity, and that we can eat his bread of presence. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with many, many different situations in our present life. We have many things in our minds, many realities we're facing. But what all of us have in common is there's one hope, that this life ultimately is fading. And Jesus, you are our Savior. And we want to commit our spirits to you. We want to commit our lives to you. And with Peter, we want to say, let our lives here be lived 
as strangers in some mysterious way. I don't know exactly how that unpacks, but let us not be so attached to this world that we feel at home, too at home. But let us be affixed to you, our Savior. Amen.